Hello, this is Ellie Mistal, and welcome to Better Know a Circuit. This is a podcast where you will learn everything you need to know about, for this episode, the Ninth Circuit. So if you're interested in what the current cases are, or which judges are the ones to watch, this is the show you want to listen to. Thanks, and let's get started. E-discovery is complicated, risky, and ridiculously expensive. It vexes attorneys and clients, and it aggravates judges. But e-discovery is also increasingly the key to deciding disputes in modern litigation, which is why it needs to be affordable, transparent, and accessible. In a word, it should be democratic. This is why Logical exists, to empower anyone to be able to do discovery from anywhere at any time. Logical.com is the antidote to the e-discovery madness. Visit visit Logical to learn more. That's Logical, L-O-G-I-K-C-U-L-L. Welcome to Better Know a Circuit. I am your host, Ellie Mistal. I am an editor for Above the Law, um, which is a website that you guys should check out if you haven't already. Um, Lately, I have been conducting kind of a private public war against Jeff Sessions. Um, it's my thing right now. Um, so I was really sad to miss his testimony today, but I hear that uh, Kamala Harris got all of my notes. So, so we should be good. Um, tonight we are here to talk about the people who really keep the Trump administration awake at night, and that would be the U.S. Court of Appeals from the Ninth Circuit. Awake tweeting. <laughs> uh, the Ninth Circuit is hot right now. Um, as Mike, the sound guy, just reminded me, though, uh, before you guys were coming in, um, the Ninth Circuit is always hot. The Ninth Circuit is always doing interesting things. And it just so happens that right now people care about it. But people should always care about what this circuit is doing because they're always on the cutting edge of something. Um, tonight we're going to talk about what the circuit does, who they are, what, God forbid, could be done about them um, if one was so inclined. Um, Before we start our panel, and I will introduce these guys in a second, but before we start, I want to thank all of our wonderful sponsors tonight. That includes UC Hastings College of Law. Thank you guys for the space. Um, Themis, um, Bar Prep, and Logical. Uh, Logical CEO Andy Wilson um, has a welcome message for you guys to let him say. (laughs) All right, thank you. Um, Thank you, everybody, for coming. I got a little little story here about why we're sponsoring this event um, that I thought might be helpful for you guys. Uh, so why response to this event? Well, the way we see it, laws are made with uh, two ingredients, two core ingredients, justice and information. Uh, you can't make law without justice or information. It's an easy recipe, um, and it should be easy, but it's not. And we have an abundance of information right now uh, at, at the tip of our fingertips, at the tip of our tongues, where you can ask anything, anytime. Uh, if you guys use an Alexa device, you know how amazing that technology is. Um, but all this information is a problem. Um, access to information is becoming a huge problem. If someone can't get access to information uh, due to friction and or cost to access that information, then how can the law be impacted? Again, to create the law, you need justice and information. Without the right information, you can't create the right law, and that's why we built Logical. The process of discovery, which is where we play, Um, which is essentially the process of finding uh, truth through information, requires access to that information. If you're familiar with the process known as e-discovery, then you know how painful this process can be. So quick uh, show of hands, how many of you have actually done e-discovery before? 
All right. Now, quick show of hands. How much? Of you, how many of you actually enjoyed that process? <laughs> no I mean, one. I quit. I quit. <laughs> he's, he started like, writing oh. for a blog. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good career move. Um, well, that's why we're wearing these Noe Discovery t-shirts, um, which, by the way, shameless plug, if you go to logical.com backslash Noe Discovery, get yourself a free Noe Discovery t-shirt. Uh, they're, they're quite snug, too. Um, so... Uh, as you guys know, e-discovery is a hot mess. Uh, the ones that have done it and the ones that have not done it yet, uh, God forbid you don't have to go through the, the old methods of doing that. It's, uh, it's terrible, but it's a necessary mess, right? Um, it's where you go through information to find truth. The problem, though, is uh, e-discovery is too often used as a weapon um, to prevent people from accessing information, and that's no good. So about four years ago, uh, we set out to solve this problem uh, by building Logical. Because um, we saw that barring people from access to information for discovery purpose directly impacts the law. Um, and again, this is why we built Logical, essentially to democratize discovery. So the way we see it, by democratizing discovery, Logical enables the free flow of information between parties, which is the essence of discovery. So the more information that flows, the more laws that are impacted, the better our society becomes. Pretty simple. And that's why we're sponsoring this event. So thank you all for coming, and thank you for fighting the good fight of liberty and justice for all. That's all the information I have to share. Thank you, Andy. <clears throat> and thank you for liberty. Um, I want to introduce our panel tonight. Um, I'm going to start on the end with Professor Rory Little. Um, Rory is the Joseph W. Crotchet Professor of Law at UC Hastings College of Law in San Francisco. He practiced before teaching. He writes for SCOTUS Blog, um, which is an excellent website. So if you were clicking on Above the Law, you should also click on SCOTUS Blog because they're pretty good too. Uh, um, and he has argued over 60 appeals um, in front of the Ninth Circuit. Kind of useful. Um, our next panelist is Julie Yap. Julie is a partner at Safarth Shaw. She focuses on labor and employment issues. She was a Supreme Court fellow in the, court of, in the court's administrative office for US courts. Um, Julie is also the senior editor of the California Peculiar, uh, Peculiarities Employment Law blog, which sounds like a reason people fail the California bar. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> um, she also clerked for uh, Frank Damrell um, for the Eastern District of California. And our third panelist is Ben Foyer. He is the chairman of the California Appellate Law Group. In 2017, the Ninth Circuit appointed him as an appellate lawyer representative, which is a pretty big get. Um, in addition to his practice, he has written for the LA Times and the Huffington Post, the National Law Journal, um, the Recorder, pretty much everywhere besides ATL is where Ben comes from. Um, so those are our guests. Uh, there are mics around the room if you guys have questions. Um, there will be a question and answer session um, at the end, but kind of as we move from topic to topic, um, if you guys have questions, raise your hand and we'll see if we can um, throw in a couple as we go. As I said, this is being recorded um, and we also encourage you to tweet out things that you might find interesting um, where our hashtag is ATL Circuit. Um, and so you can use that to tweet at us or kind of awful things you want to say, but you don't want to say um, <clears throat> in our faces, um, which is what Twitter is for, I believe. <laughs> All right, first question for you guys, and I, I really want to get just the, the thing that most young law students ask at, in kind of the first instance when they are introduced to the Ninth Circuit, to the Ninth Circuit, why is it so big and why does it have 
its reputation for being so damn liberal. Uh, and, and <laughs> well, um, the reason it's uh, so big is an artifact of history. Um, the, the Ninth Circuit, uh, when it was founded, made up approximately 3% of the population and included many of the states and uh, areas that it now encompasses today. Uh, over time, of course, the Western United States has grown dramatically. And so now it makes up a, a 11 Western states and territories and comprising something like 20% of the population of the United States, some 63, 65 million people. Um, why it's so liberal um, is uh, a result of the late 1970s, uh, or why its reputation, I should say, is so liberal, because I think that today the reputation is probably a little bit outdated. But um, in the late 1970s, Jimmy Carter had a um, Democratic majority uh, of the House and a filibuster-proof majority in the Senate. Uh, and I remember those times. <laughs> and, uh, you were three. Come on. No, not Carter's <laughs> times. The, the Obamacare times. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> it's hard, pretty hard to imagine how today. Um, uh, but uh, uh, and the President Carter and Congress expanded the Ninth Circuit dramatically. Essentially, doubled the number of seats on the Ninth Circuit, and then appointed judges who are probably include some of the most liberal judges, if not the most liberal judges in American history. If somebody, Julie, if somebody did that today, would we consider that court packing? I mean, <laughs> to have a filibuster-proof majority and then greatly expand the number of, of seats on a circuit? I think you would definitely um, hear pushback as, as court packing on that. I mean, I, I think it's interesting within the Ninth Circuit is that um, we were actually discussing uh, before the panel started is, is even within the districts, you have emergency districts at where there are um, the Eastern District of uh, California is one of them where it is very broad and that there are... Um, in general, on average, about 1,100 cases per judge. Um, and that, in, that is only active judges, and there are a number of senior judges that are taking on more cases. And yet, we cannot, um, for years, the judges have been asking for more judgeships. And I think because it's in the, the Ninth Circuit, I think because of the concerns about that, there are these, these sort of emergency districts um, where there is so much work to be done. And I think part of the reason is just the political pushback um, you know, and I think particularly from um, at least over the past, you know, eight years from one side of the okay. aisle. So, so you're, you're, you're kind of making an argument that the Ninth Circuit should somehow be bigger. It's already the biggest one we have. It's already the biggest circuit court. You, uh, you know what, Ellie? Let, let me reverse the question. Why are those circuits on the East Coast so damn small? <laughs> and why is the Supreme Court so conservative? Right? Um, I mean, the Supreme Court is a conservative court because it is an artifact of Nixon, who accidentally had a bunch of appointments, and then Carter, who got none. Uh, and then uh, 12 years of Republicans... Um, the Supreme, it's very uh, arguable that the Supreme Court is the court that's out of step, right? And they're mm -hmm. final, not because they're infallible, but they're infallible only because they're final. Uh, you know, the Ninth Circuit has so many judges. They run the gamut. There are very conservative judges on the Ninth Circuit. Uh, gee, we can tick them off. O'Scanlan, Tallman, uh, Bybee. And there are some very liberal judges. Um, but a lot of them are just moderates. And I think if you went around the country, you could find more liberal judges right now on the Fourth Circuit 
you could certainly find more liberal judges on the Second Circuit. Guido Calabresi is somewhere way over there. I mean, you know. Uh. I've, look, I've made the argument um, on the blog uh, recently in kind of in response to the Republicans successfully stealing a Supreme Court seat that the, that the, the ultimate way to fix that is not to carp about the Republicans stealing a seat or whether or not Merrick Garland should have gotten a hearing, although he clearly should have. Um, the, the, the way to fix that is to expand the number of judges on the Supreme Court so that one judge randomly dying or randomly deciding to retire doesn't lurch the country one way or the other. The Ninth Circuit being a great model, there's 29, I believe, judges on it. If we had 29 judges on the Supreme Court and one of them died in a hunting accident, <laughs> and we had to replace that judge, you wouldn't have to stop the country in order to do it because any one judge wouldn't be able to greatly swing where our, our politics, sorry, where our law is going. But imagine those 700-page opinions with three judges this way, two judges that way, and six judges that way. Uh, you know, And think about oral argument. Good God. They need it to yeah. go for at least an hour and a yeah. half. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, Clarence, you appoint a bunch of more Clarence Thomas people and it'd be even quicker. Um, attending to the question of why it's so progressive or why it's so mm -hmm. liberal, um, there is this, this argument that is being pushed right now by certain people. The Ninth Circuit is the most overturned. Is, so can I, give you, can I give you a, th that is inaccurate. Is on, ina statistics inaccurate can say anything. Yeah. Yeah, lies, but let's, lies, damn lies. Let's just think about this. The, the Ninth Circuit resolves about 11,000 cases right. a year. The next closest circuit, I think, is the Fifth Circuit with maybe 8,000. If you take the number of cases that are reversed by the Supreme Court from that 11 versus how many from the Fifth in their eight, the Ninth Circuit is without a doubt the lowest reversed percentage of any circuit in the country because there are so many cases. Um, and the Supreme Court can only do so many. And not just so many cases, but because the states within the Ninth Circuit are Western states that are dealing with border issues and all kinds of issues that some of the other states don't deal with, uh, novel laws passed by Oregon and California, very progressive states. The Ninth Circuit has opportunities to rule on questions that other circuits simply aren't getting and that are, because of their novelty, going up to the Supreme Court. So the mm -hmm. Supreme Court's taking sort of cases that may be more out there um, than, uh, um, uh, you know, so, so you know, the, the, the part of it is the caseload and the docket in the Ninth Circuit that gets it more attention. It's certainly historically, just to go back to something Rory said a little bit earlier, um, which is that, that he's, he's certainly right that the Ninth Circuit is no longer this far leftist court. There, there, but there was a time when the judges appointed by President Carter certainly made up uh, some of the most liberal judges in American history and certainly the most liberal judges at the time. You can think of judges like Stephen Reinhardt or Harry Pragerson. Uh, Pragerson, uh, when he was confirmed in the Senate, told the Senate that given the choice between his conscience and the law, he would follow his conscience. And that's not something you can really imagine many judicial nominees saying today to the Senate. Um, you know, so so. But this this goes was a time that was, that and this was goes accurate. goes to one of the one of the other I don't know myths or or at least reputations in the Ninth Circuit that it, that it generally throws things against the wall and sees what and, and looks at what sticks right that there's because of the disparity between how many cases it des, it decides and how many cases the Supreme Court can reasonably review over the course of a term or two terms or five terms that the Ninth Circuit can at some level just 
keep deciding its things, knowing that the Supreme Court can't possibly knock it all down. Right, that's the Stephen Reinhardt approach, the Pokemon theory, we call it. Pokemon you can, theory. You, you can't catch them all. Um, <laughs> you know, and he said that publicly, but, yes. but, but, I, but I dug up some stats, actually. So let me, just, let me just say, of the cases that the Supreme Court has reviewed year by year over the last, let's just say, 10 or 12 years, um, one year, the First Circuit, 100% reversed. Uh, two other years, the Second Circuit, 100% reversed. Uh, two other years, the Seventh Circuit, 100% reversed. How many years since 2006 has the Ninth Circuit had 100% of their cases reversed by the Supreme Court? Probably none. 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 Never. Which is to say, again, uh, and, and then we should talk about silent affirmances, and I'll, I'll stop dominating after this, but the, there's a case called Peña Rodriguez that came out this term, which says basically when a juror has voiced race bias in the, in the jury deliberation room, that evidence may be considered by a court. That's kind of reverses some old law. And, and they talk about the split in the circuits, uh, and they said you can challenge with that kind of evidence. One of the circuits that was affirmed in that case was the Ninth Circuit, but the case wasn't from the Ninth Circuit, so they don't get any credit for that. There are silent affirmances of the Ninth Circuit every year because they've decided cases in the same way as a majority of the Supreme Court. Huh. So you're saying so if a case if a case comes up from the Fifth Circuit, the Fifth Circuit having generally the reputation of being one of the more conservative circuits, and the Supreme Court goes with a rule that the Ninth Circuit has already itself adopted, you're calling that a silent affirm. I call that a silent affirm Because what, they're, what the court is doing is agreeing with the Ninth Circuit even though the case itself doesn't come from the Ninth Circuit. It should kind of well go said. on their leisure of, of doing stuff that isn't uh, crazy out of step with the rest of American life. I, I mean, there's no question the Ninth Circuit is further to the left, I think, than the, the, the U.S. Supreme Court. There may be some silent affirmances, and, and, and perhaps, and, but now the Fourth Circuit is certainly more to the left. The Eleventh Circuit is certainly more to the left, uh, perhaps with some even more left-leaning judges than you now see on the Ninth Circuit. The Carter judges, there's only one left, uh, at least among active judges, and that's Stephen Reinhardt. Um, and the judges that President Clinton appointed, and that um, who include Judge Tallman, a judge that that Rory earlier mentioned as one of the. But he was in a two for one deal with he the Republicans. He was, was a deal with, with Republicans, but 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 still, he's, it was one. He's one of the most conservative judges probably on the Ninth Circuit today. And um, pre the, the judges President Obama appointed. There were some very liberal judges, but also many who are not. Um, the, the center of the court, the median of the court, I think, has probably shifted to the right from where it was when the court got its reputation. Remember, this is the court that threw out the U.S. Pledge of Allegiance. Um, Stephen Reinhardt has been said to never met a habeas petition he didn't yeah, like. Throw out. I mean, well, this, although, the Pledge of Allegiance still exists. And it didn't look. Well, it found the Pledge of Allegiance unconstitutional. Well, they just, but included, then another panel then found that it was constitutional. It, exactly. <laughs> on, the U.S. On, Supreme on Court yeah. vacated on standing grounds, went to a new panel that didn't take any precedent from the old panel, which my, the judge I clerked for actually wrote that opinion, uh, finding the Pledge of Allegiance constitutional. Okay, so I, I, I was going to ask this question at the end, but um, point, yeah. it, it, it works better now, so just, just roll with me. So, so do we, is the Ninth Circuit a good story about federalism in this country or a bad story about federalism in this country, right? Because I, I think that, you know, and I, I, was, I was saying this earlier, I think that one of the things that, that especially people left of center are learning through our current times is that maybe federalism isn't a bad thing. <laughs> Right? 
Um, we, a, a lot of left-leaning people have for a long time been anti-Belarus and been for more um, kind of nationalized um, rulings. And this is a time where we're kind of cool with having kind of different regions of the countries have different interpretations of federal law. The Ninth Circuit has been doing this. Uh, they're, they're the OGs of this. Um, um, and, and you can make, uh, I think, a great argument that there is a good reason why California should have an interpretation of federal law that is different from Colorado. You can also make an argument that it is terrible that if I just go from California to Colorado, I am essentially stepping into a new country for <laughs> how federal law is interpreted. So what do we think? Do we well, think it's true county is to county. You know, you step from uh, San Francisco to Contra Costa, uh, which is just across the bay, and you're stepping into another country, some people would say. Um, <laughs> you know, federalism is a mystery, right? I mean, it's a very weird thing that Europeans don't understand it at all. We have two court systems occupying the same space. That sort of violates the laws of physics, right? I mean, uh, so it's a mystery. Uh, but I think I think the Ninth Circuit, for the reason that you mentioned, which is which is one I think is very powerful, with twenty nine judges, and and panels of three, it's actually very hard to target any particular area as always this or always that. Um, and the Ninth Circuit, because it covers so much territory, is actually incredibly respectful of state law. So you'll see them. Uh, referring cases to states uh, for decisions from their state Supreme Court before they decide an issue um, because they have that opportunity. You don't, you, know, you don't see that in the D.C. Circuit, for example. So, uh, you know, uh, whether federalism is a success or not, uh, talk about legalization of marijuana, right? I mean, the Ninth Circuit uh, covers a very different ground with that issue than some of the other circuits. Mm -hmm. um, and I think they have been respectful of the various states' choices within the circuit. Uh, so, so my view is, is I'm a big defender. I'm an apologist for the Ninth Circuit. So. <laughs> yeah, I mean, oh, I'm sorry. Sure. Yeah, I, I would agree. And I think you probably have a, a lot of people who love the federal judiciary and the Ninth Circuit on this panel. So I, I think you're going to find a lot of people saying it's, it's a success. Because I also think coming from... Um, California and looking at the California laws and how how those things interact is again I think it allows for um, sort of the testing of boundaries in sort of the federalism experience of you know state and local laws and then kind of girding those up against constitutional limits within the Ninth Circuit as sort of that boundary and understanding how how California looks at things obviously the Constitution being sort of that that outer boundary for all of them um, but I think it's very very important um, that you have uh, sort of a, a, a circuit that reflects um, kind of the uh, experimental states that would encompass the Ninth Circuit. In all it also ways. reflects an amazing amount of diversity of people, if you think about it. I mean, Hawaii and Alaska have certain uh, populations which are very different than other parts of the circuit. Um, and, and so you have this diversity within the circuit, which they are also, I think, pretty highly respectful of. You may not see that in some other circuits. I mean, in some sense, the Ninth Circuit, I think, is the model for how a circuit can run. And you know, when they did that travel ban hearing, uh, and, and 120,000 separate computers tuned in, one of them was, you know, CNN, which counted for thousands of viewers for one computer, you know, that's, that was a real technological uh, achievement. 
All their arguments now are live on video. I argued a case in the Ninth Circuit in February. I got out of the courtroom into the hallway, and the phone rang, and it was the client saying, oh, I guess that went okay. <laughs> I hadn't had a chance to think about it myself. So uh, really, uh, well, the, look, uh, geography I mean, is no longer the limit on, on certain things. I mean, there's certainly a geographic downside. I mean, judges have to travel a lot. There's no question about that. But I, but I, I tend to agree with you that it's, it's overcome by the upsides. That is, the Ninth Circuit encompassing a broad array of states uh, and just having a large size, I think is actually a positive good. That is, the decision-making process is enhanced by the diversity of viewpoints of judges from different states and backgrounds. An environmental case in Hawaii may be advantaged by having the perspective of a judge from Alaska who sees environmental issues from a different perspective, or from Idaho, or from California. Um, and you, you get a, a variety of backgrounds. I mean, you mentioned the travel ca ban case. Look at, look at the judges and where they're from uh, on both of the, the travel ban cases. Uh, you've got judges from Arizona in both cases. You've got judges from California in both cases. Um, you know, so I, I think that there's an upside to that. In terms of the mechanics of how the circuit operates, it's very clear that the circuit operates very efficiently, uh, in part because it has to given its size. Uh, and in fact, it operates so efficiently that if there weren't sort of jurisprudential reasons that it would be impossible to do, I think a comment Rory made earlier, really, he, perhaps he meant it as a joke, but I think it's extremely apt, which is why are those East Coast circuits so small? Why do you have a, a circuit for four states in New England and, and three states in the Mid-Atlantic Or the D.C. circuit. Or the, why is the D.C. circuit Penn and the Square fourth miles. circuit? Why are they not combined? Why, why don't we want, you know, one of the complaints about the size of the Ninth Circuit is, oh, we make our judges work a lot. I think it has to be the only time in, in American history where anyone's complained about civic public servants having to work a lot. <laughs> oh, boy, you know, what a shame. Um, you know, wh why would we want to keep uh, a double the bureaucracy uh, when we can kind of have efficiencies of scale? Um, so, uh, um, you know, so I, I, th I think it would be terrific if they merged a, a number of the East Coast circuits. Yeah, I mean, you're almost making your argument for centralized regionalism, though, right? Well, that's what <laughs> the circuits sort of, sort of are. I mean, they're regional. I mean, that's what they were meant to be. I mean, they were only originally developed as circuits so that you could have single appellate judges or, or a limited number of appellate judges who would actually ride around in the geographic area and hear cases. Um, and, um, you know, and... and it, you know, it just makes sense to have people kind of near the, the cases they're deciding. Which is sort of interesting. You know, the Supreme Court initially, the biggest complaint of all the justices originally yeah. appointed was that they had to get on horses and ride to different cities. And they don't do that anymore. They sit in one place. You know, the Ninth Circuit holds hearings in, they have four regional centers, and then they sit by design every, once a year at least, in every state, and often more than that, um, all over. They make all the judges go to all the different they states make panels in of, the circuit? Panels of three. Right. Really? So a panel of three, one panel of three will always sit at least once a year in Montana. One panel of three will always sit at least once a year in, in Anchorage right. uh, or in Hawaii. Right, there are um, four formal courthouses, just to make clear, where they do right. hearings regularly. But then, as we were saying, they go to the other states at least once a year in, in law schools. So they make it a point to see. Just to, like, sample the food? Like, why, <laughs> like, why would they do that now? To let the people of the circuit understand that their judges are, are in some sense, their judges, right? As opposed, I mean, I don't know how you feel about the Supreme Court. You're, you're pretty close in New York. And by the way, it's an honor to be here with Ellie Mistel. Do you guys know who this guy is? I mean, look him, look him up on this blog above the law. You'll, you'll, you'll get a kick out of it. But 
Thank you. But, <laughs> but you know, we, we don't feel here in California that the Supreme, we don't see these people. We don't, we don't run into them on the street. We don't see them in restaurants. We, they're just people maybe on TV and certainly not live in an argument. So, because they don't televise anything. So, you know, I think there's some value in the circuit making it a point to go to every place within the circuit. Elena Kagan bought me some popcorn. <laughs> you were a lucky guy. Yeah, no, I was, I was, she was, this is when she was still in law school. I was, I, I had her and she, uh, she saw me at a bar. I was buying beer, as one does. Um, and she was like, she saw me and she was kind of like, are you really just going to get the beer? And I'm like, of course. She's like, get a snack. And I'm like, I can't afford a snack. And she's like, I'll buy you popcorn. <laughs> Bought me popcorn. Smart food. Um, so yes, I feel very close to the Supreme Court. Um, are there any You're probably familiar with the expression disruptive technology. It describes new and improved ways of doing things that in their wake disrupt and replace existing business methods and practices. Themis Bar Review certainly has disrupted the outdated business methods and practices of traditional bar review. But we are hardly newcomers in that business. Themis was founded nine years ago by the COO of Barbary, and many national and regional directors joined him, giving Themis more collective bar experience than all other companies. Sitting captive in a classroom listening to non-interactive lectures every day for six weeks bound by a one-size-fits-all schedule was never effective. It's been replaced by our innovative online on-demand bar review. Themis pioneered online bar review learning using proven scientific cognition and retention principles with our decades of bar exam prep experience, our exceptional law faculty, and the highest level of personal attention. So we've changed how students are preparing for their bar exams today. If imitation is the best form of flattery, the other bar review companies have all belatedly followed suit because that is what students demand. Themis students overwhelmingly recommend our programs because they work and our students pass their bar exams. We are the only national bar review company that releases our pass rates for every state on every exam. We also disrupted the bloated pricing of bar review tuitions that students were hostage to pay in the past. Thanks, Themis, for bringing down the average cost of bar review by thousands of dollars. We are proud of our better academic model, and we are proud of our business ethics. It's a new world. All right, I'm going to roll into um, more of the personalities on the court. So I want each one of you, we're going to start here and move, move down. I want each one of you to pick who you think the most important just judge is on the circuit. Um, and you can define important in any way you want, whether or because they're at the fulcrum of how the court turns, because their opinions are most highly cited or highly quotable, um, because they represent some, some particular uh, uh, theory in law. Answer that, answer the, uh, the, the thought of importance however you want, but give me, give me a judge that we should uh, kind of focus on and know more about on the circuit. Um, you know, I'm going to sort of cheat a little bit, and I'm going to pick two, but because of the way they interact together, um, and because I Are think they dating? That, that is, well, in, in perhaps an intellectual <laughs> we, we don't way, know. you never know, really, with some of the, the judges, um, and, and that is Alex Kaczynski, the former chief judge of the circuit, uh, and Stephen Reinhardt, the so-called liberal lion. And, certainly dating. Um, certainly dating, yeah. And, you know, they, they're they're not 
they're sort of part of the circuit as it has existed. So they're not, you know, Judge Reinhardt's, I think, 85. Uh, judge Kaczynski's quite a bit younger. He's, he's made a judge at age 35, which is pretty incredible uh, to become a Ninth Circuit judge at that age. Youngest in modern history the last time. I think they're going to do that for a while. Um, the, um, but um, what's interesting is kind of how these two men who appear very different at first glance interact. And I think that that, in a way, speaks uh, about the Ninth Circuit and exemplifies what the Ninth Circuit in, in a certain way is about, and is about that interaction. And uh, on one hand, you have Judge Kaczynski, who was an appointee of Ronald Reagan's, uh, and who uh, is broadly considered to have, uh, if not a libertarian philosophy, certainly a, a form of conservative libertarianism. Uh, and then you have Stephen Reinhardt, who was appointed by Jimmy Carter, and is um, somebody who, in fact, Alex Kaczynski called uh, perhaps the most liberal appointee ever appointed to a, a U.S. circuit court. Um, and and but but these two who have very different opinions in in many different kinds of cases come together directly uh, when it comes to uh, sort of many aspects of criminal law and the the right to be kind of kept away from the state. For Judge Kaczynski, it comes from his kind of skepticism about government and about the state. For Judge Reinhardt. Point out, Judge Kaczynski is an immigrant to this country and, and, and has, has hey, Judge Kaczynski has a story. I mean, he's a fascinating <laughs> judge. There's, uh, I'm sure most of you know about him. If you don't, you can Google and find tremendous amounts about him, including his but, clip from but being on the dating But Bob the Law is very biased for Kaczynski because he got, what, the most sexy judge in yes, the well, country? Yes, what David Ladd <laughs> From above the under, law? There was an <laughs> underneath. Part of the ATL words and stuff. Yeah, underneath their robes, he, he did judicial <laughs> hotties. And, yeah. okay. and I believe, if I remember really, Judge Kaczynski nominated himself <laughs> for that award. Not only that, but he called all of his former clerks and friends and said, please vote for me. Please vote for me. Yes, that's right. David Ladd has a lot of sway among the federal judiciary. <laughs> anyway. um, but um, the, the uh, uh, you know, he comes at this from a perspective that's very skeptical of government. He, he is a wonderful writer, and especially, and you should, should read some of his opinions. Uh, and Judge Reinhardt comes at sort of criminal defendants and the rights of criminal defendants from a perspective of liberalism and, and the sympathy and empathy for individuals who I think are in a weaker power situation in life and have disadvantages as a result of that. Um, but they really join together in some tremendous criminal uh, defense. Of me. And, I, and I printed one out before coming out here that, um, and, and sometimes it's really just them. And so I found a, a case from a few years ago um, in which uh, Judges Reinhardt and Kaczynski uh, write together a dissent from denial of rehearing on Bonk. Um, uh, to an opinion that was written by Judges Fisher and Graber, who um, are, are pretty liberal folks, but they came down sort of against a criminal defendant. And um, Judge Reinhardt wrote, and, and Judge Kaczynski joined in full. I just want to read a couple of sentences from this, because this is a, a very, in some ways, con considered conservative judge, a very, very liberal judge. Uh, and they write, the black case require us, uh, cases require us to address the limits on how our government may treat its citizens. They pose the question whether the government may target poor minority neighborhoods and seek to tempt the residents to commit crimes that might well result in their escape from poverty. The majority opinion decides all of these issues incorrectly. Uh, it does nothing to caution the government about overreaching. Instead, it sends a dangerous signal that courts will uphold law enforcement tactics, even though their threat to values of equality, fairness, and liberty is unmistakable. Um, th this viewpoint, I think, when people talk about sort of the Western approach to law, um, which is something you hear about from time to time. I think that kind of skepticism of government, 
Um, you can see it in a, 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 a opinion by now Justice Gorsuch from the, when he was in Colorado in the Tenth Circuit. Uh, he wrote an opinion that found that a, a bunch, a number of signs that said no trespassing were enough to sort of give a, a signal to the police that if they wanted to come onto the property, they needed to get a warrant. They couldn't just then ask for permission. Uh, and, that, and that sort of, especially in criminal rights matters, I think, um, you know, is why I think Judge Kaczynski and Judge Reinhardt kind of come together in an interesting way. I'll just throw out here, and that's, that's a great way of putting, putting it. I'll just throw out here, from my perspective, where, where the second circuit is the one that I probably know the best. One of the, one of the real differences that you see between the circuits, the way that the, the, the ninth is able to write about some of these issues of liberty, and I think, as you put it exactly right, skepticism of government, that's how the second circuit rolls with money. Right, like this, <laughs> this, the Second Circuit really has 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 a different sense of how powerful corporations do operate, need to operate, should be allowed to operate. There and and there's there's a and again, it's not every, any any circuit judge is going to be one of you know the smartest people that you meet. They're going to be very well versed in all kinds of different legal theories and law. Each circuit, I do do think there there are part there are aspects of the circuit that they are particularly kind of tuned into because of where they are. The second circuit version of this, and again, I think you put it so well. The second circuit version of the skepticism for government, and the second circuit it comes on the kind of skepticism for regulation of business. And that can come from liberals or conservatives on the Second Circuit, where they're just a little bit, you know, you don't get, put like this, you don't get Sanders people on the Second Circuit, right? <laughs> you, don't, you don't get this a, a reflexive um, 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 dislike for millionaires and billionaires um, out of the Second Circuit. So I, I think it's important when you're thinking about the circuits to, to at least have some of these ideas uh, in mind. Um, Julie, who's your who's your most important? So my most important is uh, one for his terms of service, but also for sort of what the vacuum um, he's leaving behind will be, which is Judge O'Scanlan. Mm -hmm. um, in part because uh, he is known to be one of the more conservative judges uh, for decades on the court. Above the laws, David uh, Latt, clerked for O'Scanlan. Yes, and he has a very uh, lovely lovely piece on him actually. Um, but I think, again, it's sort of a different sort of when you talk about conservative um, judicial philosophy. It, it is not um, an aggressive conservatism. In fact, I think really he is truly a um, sort of the, I guess, uh, <laughs> antithesis of Judge Pregerson of, you know, really seeing where courts and the law um, fit in into our society, whereas instead of having, um, I think really having a pushback against having courts and unelected judges weigh in on matters of, of large public policy. And I think you see him coming at opinions um, from that same perspective and, and reaching different rulings because where the legislature has decided, I think he had a lot of respect for that um, and sort of a role, a limited role of what the court should play in judicial interpretation. Um, and I think he was he was so um, important to, to the Ninth Circuit because you saw so many Supreme Court opinions coming up from the Ninth where he dissented, where they would often look to his dissents um, to sort of, or at least you, you saw a lot of reflection of the final opinion from those dissents. Um, and he, when I talk about sort of the vacuum, is that he has taken senior status um, which frees up his uh, his spot. Um, he will still be available to adjudicate cases, um, not necessarily to sit on bonk. Can, um, can you explain senior status just a little bit more? 
Sure. So um, when judges, uh, I, I won't get into the nitty gritty of the, the rule of 80, but um, after a certain amount of years, um, both in service and age, um, judges can elect to take senior status, which essentially means that they can contribute and continue to work on cases, um, sit on panels, um, within certain limits, um, but it also frees up that that spot. Um, there is a vacancy created by taking senior status, which can be filled with an active judge. They essentially work for free. I mean, it's really an incredible testament to the judiciary. There are, what, 40, there are 29 active judges now, and I think 48 judges total. So 19 senior judges who could be sitting at home collecting a full pension at the same amount of money that they're making working. Sometimes party. And you so usually don't do it until the party that appointed you is in power. <laughs> and, judge, and Judge Reinhardt will never do it because as far as he's concerned, nobody appoints anyone well, as you liberal know, as to, him. Right. Much to his credit. He's, he's not wrong. He's not wrong. I think, you know, just, just to kind of just sow some doubt into the, the tremendous politicism that Rory's comments suggest, Judge O'Scanlan announced that he was going senior before the election. And in fact, when I think most folks thought Hillary Clinton was going to win, including Judge O'Scanlan, who I think, I, I want so, I, I, I to his credit. I sure. wanted to bring up senior status uh, to hit on, especially because this, to me, is one of the ways that the circuit courts just work better than the Supreme Court, and it's something that the Supreme Court should really think about doing. <laughs> when you when you take senior status, not only does it, like Julie said, open up that seat to be you to be replaced, because you know, without being aged, it's like you know you you're getting on, and it, and it and it recycle some of the vitality of the court. It also, I think, very importantly, creates an opportunity for judges who are active to recuse themselves without completely blowing up the, 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 the operation of the law. And I think, it's so, I think it would be so important, so much better, if our Supreme Court had a system. Um, uh, Professor Lawrence Tribe has made this point, I think, uh, very well. Um, a couple of times that if you if you let's take a uh, uh, Stevens um, who's who's still alive <laughs> um, seems to still be kind of with it um, if he had been able to take senior status um, still kind of be around but have his seat replaced it would create an opportunity for other judges to recuse themselves in situations where they perhaps should I think Elena Kagan has recused herself quite a few times um, during uh, some of these uh, debates because she was solicitor general and worked on some of the cases that eventually appeared to this uh, uh, went up to the Supreme Court certainly in a situation that we just had with Garland um, the court wouldn't have been operating quite so obviously um, undermanned while the political system sorted out who to replace who with. Um, senior status, I think, is a, is a beautiful, elegant way um, to really encourage active justices to recuse themselves when they should. You gotta remember, at the Supreme, uh, the Supreme Court is the only court where the recusal rules are whatever the judge says, says they are. Um, every other court has kind of, relatively speaking, well thought out and well enforced um, times when a judge is supposed to recuse themselves. Supreme Court is just up to them. And so you have a lot of justices kind of sitting on cases that I think most ethical people would say that they maybe shouldn't be. So senior status, super important. Well, and because, I mean, just to follow up on that just a little bit, because uh, there is no tradition of anyone filling in for a recused justice, the presumption at the Supreme Court is that you should not recuse unless you really have to, because otherwise you can skew the vote in some very serious way. 
The California Supreme Court, for example, when one of their judges, justices is recused, they just have a system of reaching down to the Court of Appeals and pulling up whoever's next on the list, and they actually have a list that, you know, so, so if, if a judge, let's say a justice is uh, recused or there's a spot open on the California Supreme Court, uh, the morning argument, will, they'll pull in appellate judge X. For the next argument, they'll pull in appellate judge Y. For the next, you know, even in the same day, you'll have different justices. And so there's, there's a sort of an easy system that fills in. So there's no shame in recusing. There's no... Uh, resentment that you're increasing the workload. It, it, it's a very different system and it and works it, pretty well. And it depoliticizes the mm -hmm. issue, which is mm -hmm. what I think we should all be going for. Um, anyway, Professor, who's your who's your uh, justice to, judge to watch? So I so first, let me just say, uh, because there are 29 judges, it is actually I think very difficult to say any one judge on that court is sort of the most important. There, it is very difficult for one judge to move that court around very much. Uh, judge Kaczynski, when he was chief judge, had that authority. Um, because when you're chief judge, you sit on every en banc automatically, whereas other, otherwise, 11 judges sit on the en banc court. They never sit all 29. Uh, theoretically, they could, but they never have. Um, so if you're the chief judge, you sit on all of them. So that's a powerful position. And so I would say, uh, just let me catch up. We all understand the difference between panel and en banc, right? That the, the court hears most cases in a three-judge panel, but if you don't like the ruling or whatever, you can appeal it up and the, the court will sit en banc. But as Professor said, um, that will give you a panel of 11 justices, um, not the full 29 Right. In every other them. circuit, en banc means all, all the them, active right. judges, uh, as many as 15 or maybe 17. Uh, for, and, and now 11 can bind a court of 29. Right. And if you happen to win en banc in the Ninth Circuit 6 to 5, it means 6 can bind the court of 29, yeah. which is not even 25%. Well, right? but 3 usually binds the court of 9, right? Precedent in the Ninth Circuit is binding on future panels. So that, I don't know that that necessarily makes a difference. But they really do, you know, when they're selecting the 11 judges that they pick for a limit, what they call limited on banc in the Ninth Circuit, they actually still wheel around a basket with balls that has each of the ju judges' names on them. And they wind a thing, and it twists them up, and they bring it by to a different judge each for each argument. And the judge or one of the judge's law clerks will, or assistants, will actually pick out the the eleven, the ten names. That's the, that's the other important thing. The 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 panels are random. The on banc is random. So again, it kind of depoliticizes the court because you really are getting a random sampling. I. I it's an important thing for me because I got this wrong recently in a post and I was made horrible fun of on, on Twitter. <laughs> like it was just, it was like so really me, bad for me on Twitter for like a good like half an hour before I realized my mistake and I changed it. So let me, <laughs> let me tell you, um, so I think Sidney Thomas, who's the chief judge right now, is arguably the most important person just because he's the chief judge and administratively runs the court, sits on every on banc. Uh, but he's a very low key, actually quiet guy from Montana who... Interestingly enough, everybody likes. Uh, the, he is very well liked among all the judges on the court. But let me give you another name, which is Marsha Burzon. Um, and, and I think we ought to mention that there are some women on the Ninth Circuit. Uh, not as many maybe as there should be, but uh, Marsha Burzon is famous for being the first law clerk, uh, female law clerk ever chosen by Justice Brennan. And she actually got in because he rejected her. And a professor at uh, Berkeley called Brennan and said, you've got to be kidding. You've never had a woman. And it's, you know, 19, 
78 or whatever. <laughs> and so Berzon uh, is sort of a path-breaking uh, woman lawyer uh, here in the Ninth Circuit. She is a very smart, intellectually powerful, on a court of intellectually powerful people, she is very powerful, and they're recognized. I mean, they recognize how smart she is. The conservatives recognize how smart she is. If you've got Burrs on, on your panel, you're going to have to really do your homework if you want to go another way. And she sort of took it on uh, as, as her cause when she was first put on the court. I think she's a Clinton appointee. I may be wrong. Yep. Um, Immigration, right? Immigration was not the hot topic that it currently is. <laughs> um, and the Ninth Circuit has a ton of these cases coming out of the southern border and all the other uh, entry points, including Hawaii. Marsha Burzon has done more to develop the law for immigration and uh, refugee claims and asylum claims, I think, than any other judge uh, in the United States. <laughs> and, and she is recognized within the circuit as being that, that judge. Uh, she's really forceful. She's powerful. She's she's no fun if she's not happy with you. Um, so I would say she's uh, one of the most important judges on the circuit. And let me just mention another uh, person who I think I would call one of the most important judges on the circuit. Her name is Kathy Catterson. Uh, she's never been a judge on the Ninth Circuit, but she's been the clerk of the Ninth Circuit for how many years? Retired. R R I know. I know. Oh, yeah, yeah. And now she's just retired. She became just when when Kaczynski became chief judge. He 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 went to Kathy Catterson, the clerk of the court, who'd been the clerk for, I think, already 20 years, and he said, I want to make you the circuit executive for the Ninth Circuit, but you're also going to stay the clerk of the court. And <laughs> she did both jobs for, I don't know, a decade or something. Um, and now she is, quote, retired, and she is still working for the court uh, on various issues, including whether the Ninth Circuit should be split. Um, I, I just love Kathy Catterson, so I want to make a plug. Let me just say one more thing. There are four new judges, right? The most powerful judge on the Ninth Circuit is probably a judge we don't know yet. But 10 years from now, that's who we'll be talking about. Uh, Obama had, I think, four appointees. And I'm sorry, I'm going to forget one name. Um, Owens, Friedland. Who's he, the? He had, I think it's the more than four. It's seven. Paul Watford. Watford. Her, Andy Hurwitz. Uh, well, uh, no, but Hurwitz is 74. Um, He's not going to be around ten years from now. He's, oh, I he's, see what you're saying. He's, right. he's a friend of mine. There are four young. <laughs> there, there are four, and on the conservative side, S S Sandra um, Ikuda, hmm? who I think is amazingly powerful in, intellectually. You're going to hear about these people um, uh, ten years from now, and you got to keep your eye on them. They sit as often as any other judge on the circuit. Uh, they're doing the same number of cases per year. Um, and so they have the same opportunity to, quote, move the law if they want to. Well, Watford was, I was just going to say, Watford, who you mentioned, was twice on the, um, the President Obama's Supreme Court shortlist. Yeah. My, my, my pick was going to be Friedland. Um, um, she, is, she is young. She is fierce. She is an Obama appointee. She is going to be, I think, somebody that is, the, when, whenever this wheel comes back around, she is, I think, absolutely going to be somebody that, that is talked about um, on term, in terms of a Supreme Court search. And the list. first travel ban opinion, um, which was not yeah. appealed by the administration, uh, was per curiam, but many people think that, that uh, she wrote Michelle it. And, Friedland and wrote the, that. The, the, the first Ninth Circuit hearing about the travel ban that all those people tuned into, she, she was the one asking the questions that you wanted asked. Like, she was, if, if she was the voice, she was the name that rung out, if you will, um, from that first initial three-judge panel 
um, that so many people tuned into. I think Freeland is absolutely personal watch. You're absolutely right about Watford. Watford was was kind of is consistently he's African American. So a lot of times when you're oh name me some African American, his name kind of comes comes up. Um, Freeland is much more liberal yeah. than Paul Watford, than Watford, who is a relative. <laughs> Centrist, yep. uh, and probably much more in the mold of President Obama, I was about who to in say, many like, ways was a relative centrist. Wa- Watford would would make more sense as an Obama yeah. Supreme Court appointee because of his centrism. Right. Friedland's the one that if Bernie Sanders had won, Friedland's the one that she would want, right? right. Um, um, and so I think that she is definitely somebody to to watch going forward. Um, but Burzon is also a, a great great name. I, I, I have read one of her. And remember, we have generate. I mean, you're talking about sort of generational differences. That is, when I mentioned Steve Reinhardt and Alex Kaczynski, they're kind of the generate. I mean, Alex is a bit young, but but they're they're sort of the gen. I mean, he'll be around for a while. But, but the, the generation that's passing out of the greatest influence. Judge Burzon. Uh, 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 Willie Fletcher. Susan um, Graber, I would put in that list, yeah. Sure, Susan Graber. The um, middle sort of are, tier. Are, 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 yeah, they're kind of in the in the ascendancy right now over the next maybe, you know, five to ten years. And then the, the folks that, that um, uh, Rory has, has mentioned are the next generation, I think. All right, so I ran long in the opening section, which means I need to go quick. I'm going to skip over our provocation issue question, although I think that's important we can talk about later. Um, I want, I, we, we got to talk about the Muslim man. Like we just like we're not we're not going to do a whole panel about the Ninth Circuit and not talk about Muslim ban. There is no Muslim ban. Uh, it's just a travel sorry. ban, right? It's, it's, it's not a ban. <laughs> no, no, no. The president the president called it a travel ban in a tweet, and as we know uh, from from the Ninth Circuit's opinion, but as we we knew before then from from the White House, those are official statements of the president. Let's it's let's a travel ban. Let's start here. Why did the, why is this? This is a ban. Uh, this is a order that applied everywhere. Why? Why does it end up? At, why is it the Ninth Circuit that has taken the lead in knocking this down? And that, you know, the Fourth Circuit, there are cases all over the country. Why is the Ninth Circuit the circuit? That it's just has, a coincidence. It's, it's just a, that's partly a coincidence. That's, that's Neil that's we're Katyal, we're, we're going with Neil Katyal, the former SG, one of the former SGs, acting SG, just accidentally got hooked into a case in Hawaii <laughs> to to drive it to the Ninth Circuit. No, I mean because the Ninth Circuit has. On, on the topic of immigration law, really the most liberal profile in the United States. It is a sympathetic, and, and it's not like every immigrant wins in the Ninth Circuit, but compared to, say, the Fifth Circuit uh, or the other border circuits, um, the Ninth Circuit has that reputation, and the ACLU wanted to be here, uh, and, and the uh, pro bono people, that the other groups wanted to be here. So is there a little bit of form shopping that happened from the, from the ACLU? I mean, I, I think... Possibly, I don't want to ascribe um, forum shopping motives. I will. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, during the Obama administration, the immigration cases were specifically brought in the what was it, the Southern District of Texas? Yeah, yeah. That one district judge who really hated Obama and immigrants, and he just issued nationwide injunctions for everything. But, but I will say, I, I think you can you can say yes. There's there is a reason why there were a number of cases brought within the Ninth Circuit. But I also think you've got to look at the facts, which is that not all the original travel ban cases they they started in in New York, right? And then they sort of went down the Eastern Seaboard, and it just you know again, I think the Ninth Circuit was willing and and has the the expertise on these issues to kind of take them up. And and for some reason it was pro- obviously when you're going to appeal the cases where they come up and where you would want those appeals heard, um, I think makes a lot of sense. But but I also think to 
you know, be careful about kind of ascribing that it is purely a forum shopping motive when you see, when you saw all of those cases sort of going in different um, Julie, I think you're exactly right. I mean, I mean, who did they draw in Seattle, right? They drew a district court judge who's a Republican appointee mm -hmm. who then immediately struck it down, stayed it nationwide, and, 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 and then suddenly became an emergency appeal. Yeah. Uh, that, that, I think, was as much accidental and hard work by the lawyers who were involved in hard work by that judge. Um, and, you know, the Fourth Circuit is now the circuit that has the case in front of the Supreme Court. The Ninth Circuit is actually lagging behind. They, yesterday, the Ninth Circuit, again, uh, <laughs> struck down travel ban two, if you want to call it that, uh, on non-religion grounds, non-constitutional grounds. But the Fourth Circuit's case is already up in front of the Supreme Court, and the Ninth Circuit is now going to be well, linked. Not, uh, I mean, it hasn't been granted cert yet. It's, no, 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 it's... no, right. No, it's up for um, br further briefing next week, and they, we think at least a decision on a stay application next Thursday or Friday. But, but, you know, for all the complaints that the Ninth Circuit's too slow, <laughs> this is a testament to how efficient they can be when they really need to be, right? I mean, they got through the, the, the Seattle case very quickly. The, the judges worked together efficiently at great distance. You had judges from, I mean, in the first case, you had at least one Republican uh, uh, who is, uh, uh, what, from, from Oregon or something. And then you had a, a judge from Hawaii. And then you had a, a judge from California, I think. And then uh, in the second one, again, you had them all over the place. Do we think, and I, I, want, I, I know you guys uh, can't, fully put yourselves in the head of, of, of the Trump people, thankfully. But do we think that they just didn't know about the Ninth Circuit? Like, I, I, <laughs> when, when you read, the, especially the first one, when you read the first executive order, you, I think anybody with even slight legal training kind of reads that and it's like, how, what, what did they think was going to happen? Do we think? <laughs> Rory, you've got a view on this. What, what do you think was going through the minds of the White House folks who drafted that first order? I really think that what you said is right, that they didn't. The same thing is true with firing Jim Comey, right? What we know now is that President Trump was being told by his closest advisors, you should fire him because no one's going to care. It's not going to be a big deal. Totally misread it. Um, and the, the Muslim ban, I mean, his base said, we want a Muslim ban. So they wrote a Muslim ban. And I don't think they had the experience, right? He doesn't have experienced people with the government or with the court system in his close unit. Um, and in some sense, we should be thankful for that, right? I mean, that first travel ban was so badly done and so kind of transparently focused on religion, frankly, right. that, um, that it was an easy fish to shoot, and which is why they did not take it to the Supreme Court, because they would have lost. And then when he tweets, and by the way, judges are bad. I can't so -called remember. So-called judges are. Right, so-called judges, called judges. Yeah. I mean, he, at that point, he lost the votes of the Chief Justice, <laughs> Justice Kennedy. So, so, you know. And the judges below, who he was calling, <laughs> yeah. you know, so, so So, I mean, I think it really is, you know, they, they, somebody said, right, he's just not used to it. He's got to get used to it. That's, that's sort of a bad excuse for bad government, I think. Right. That was the Paul Ryan, like, aw, he's small. He's learning. <laughs> <laughs> I do think there's also, um, you know, and again, I, I'm not there, but it, it appears that there's sort of a catch-up game being played by the AG's office, um, not only with the, the travel ban, but also with the Sanctuary Cities um, case, which is obviously not in the Ninth Circuit yet, but where we are now um, with that opinion, which, you know, our, our, the president attacked the Ninth Circuit for, even though it was a Northern District District Court judge, um, <laughs> I think where you see kind of where that is right now is that there has been an AG memorandum that is trying to reinforce the position that they argued um, 
in support of the executive order uh, trying to withdraw funding for sanctuary, sanctuary cities. Um, and so I think what you're seeing is this game of catch up. And it, it, it's very hard, I think, to lawyer from behind and to try and advise and, and look at the legal parameters. And you know, so I think it's hard for the Justice Department. And I think we need to remember there's a lot of hardworking career attorneys in those places that are, are trying to, to do the right thing or at least serve the country. Um, and I think it's it's hard to lawyer from behind and sort of make these post hoc arguments to substantiate when they're not being vetted on the front end. I just not on the Ninth Circuit, but I, I have my own theory about. I, I honestly I do not think the Supreme Court is going to take um, the travel ban case because I, I don't see the upside for them. They're not. I there, there are Republicans who think that well we've got we've got our five. The five will vote for. I I don't think that Kennedy or Roberts wants to author the next Korematsu. I, I think there's there there's a way there's there's there was a there was a thin window where they could have gotten it through based on the well you can't ascribe campaign statements I think that there was there was enough conservative momentum to back him up on that but after that last round of like Twitter craziness I think I think it's just done so Ellie if you believe in a conspiracy theory and I'm not sure that I do there is a way for the Supreme Court to grant cert in the travel ban case next week. And then the 90-day period, you could say, has passed and then or various it. other things. Then you say, oh, it's moot. We dismiss it as moot, and we direct the opinion below to be vacated. Yep. This is a way to grant cert, uh, vacate opinions they don't like, and leave no footprints. Yep. Uh, but, the, but the, you know, I, I, that assumes the administration won't simply reissue the executive order with a longer period of time. I mean, they, you're just putting off the the decision. And I think, you know, you know, look at the... Justice the, delayed is justice. Yeah, it might, it might be. Um, the, but, but the, you know, look at... The, you have to look at the panels that have so far ruled the ban unconstitutional. The, fir the first travel ban had many more sort of very blatant legal problems, due process problems. It's just, just, it just a ham-fisted kind of political maneuver and legal maneuver to, to issue it. The second one is not quite so weak um, in terms of how it's written. And, and you know, you have a, a three-judge panel of the Ninth Circuit, all Clinton appointees. Um, you have a 13-judge panel of the Fourth Circuit, 10 Democratic appointees on that panel, with the three dissenting votes being Republicans. Um, you know, so conservative judges, certainly, and you know, you saw the dissents uh, from the Ninth Circuit's, uh, you know, from the dissents from denial of hearing on Bonk in the Ninth Circuit, where a number of conservative uh, appointees uh, joined in those dissents. Um, and so I, I think even though you, you do have these courts that, you know, circuit courts that have come in and struck this down and issued, you know, very sweeping language, drips with kind of, uh, I think, racial bias was what one of the things the Fourth Circuit said. Um, you know, it's quite possible that a, pa a different panel uh, with judges of different backgrounds would, would see it very differently. And, and you do have the, you know, the case percolating up yeah. through other courts. I, 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 I hear what you're saying. Yeah. I just don't think one of those judges is Anthony Kennedy. <laughs> that may, well, that may absolutely be right. I mean, you may and you may have the four conservative judges on the Supreme Justices on the Supreme Court not wanting to take it because they don't know what Roberts and Kennedy will do. Yeah, um, we will see soon enough. Last question, um, and, and you have to ask it after talking about the travel ban. And given who's the president, what can he do? He has said in the ways that he communicates that he wants to do something. Clearly, if he didn't know about the Ninth Circuit before, now he know, right? <laughs> now him know about this 
about this part of America. He has threatened, he has blustered, he has said things. He is also the President of the United States operating with a full House of Representatives on his team and the United States Senate on his team. So it's not like he has no power. He, you know, what can he do to stop the Ninth Circuit from stopping him? He's created, right, all this distraction now. I mean, the, 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 the Congress, and all, they're all focused on other things, uh, like Jim Comey and, and Jeff Sessions. Um, but... Rod Rosenstein, who's now the Deputy Attorney General, who's getting a lot of press in all directions, is someone I've known for 20-some years. Mm. Um, he understands that the way to change, if you will, the, the, the game is to start appointing people and getting them confirmed. The Ninth Circuit has four open spots right now, four open spots that could be confirmed very quickly with his majority in, 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 in both houses. And no filibuster um, possibility. So right? if he can just follow the advice of, <laughs> and, and yesterday, by the way, right, they announced, I think, eight uh, U.S. attorneys up for nomination. All of, uh, out of the eight, they filled every spot in Alabama, which is Jeff Sessions' uh, state, right? Right. So Sessions knows what he's doing on this, whether for better or worse, and I know what you think about that. And <laughs> Rosenstein knows what he's doing. If they can just be patient, they can change the face by this uh, appointment uh, mechanism of judges and U.S. attorneys uh, on the circuit. Um, I don't think he can split the circuit. I don't think splitting the circuit makes any sense. Even if you made California a circuit all by itself, which nobody thinks makes any sense, it would be the biggest circuit in the country <laughs> because of how many cases California generates. What, one so, of the proposals was actually to split California yeah, down the middle. That, and and then you imagine competing if you drive views from Fresno to LA, you have a completely law. different federal law. Wait, what? <laughs> It's one the, of the proposals, the proposals was to split California in the middle and make one. The smartest way to do it. And there would be a super on banc proceeding when there was a conflict between the circuits that affects California. If you law. just draw a line across the middle, <laughs> right? It, it, and and I mean, it's about most politics. people from San Francisco about... would be very happy to be separated from Los Angeles <laughs> and, and vice versa. Um, I, no, I'm following that San Jose law, yo. <laughs> I don't, yeah, yeah. So I don't, I don't think it's going to happen. Go ahead, Jim. Yeah, I, I agree. I don't think it's going to happen. And I think, um, you know, we, we see the same debate. We see the same bills introduced, you know, on a rolling basis. Um, but I think one of the – there were, in fact – hearings on this earlier a couple months ago, and you had Chief Judge Thomas, you had Judge Bea and Judge Kaczynski, really sort of the you know, conservative uh, wing of the Ninth Circuit, if you want to you know, characterize it that way, talking about not splitting the Ninth Circuit. And I think if people really listen to what happens on the ground and sort of give any sort of bearing, which I think ultimately they have to, um, it, it just doesn't make sense. Um, it doesn't make sense from an administrative standpoint. Um, and it wouldn't do Trump any good on the travel ban because you'd have Seattle and you'd have Hawaii. So you'd have two circuits having ruled against <laughs> instead of one. So, Are there questions that we can answer about? How many of you watched the travel ban or listened to the travel ban argument? That, that internet, a lot of you. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. I listened to it. I was literally at a at a school board meeting for my kid's school, and they're talking about you know things, and I'm like, huh? <laughs> Friedland, no, you should really listen. Oh yeah, the pool, great. Uh, no questions no out questions? there. No questions. You guys know everything. 
Okay, well, we, we will be milling around so you Wait, can there's ask. There's a question us. there. There's a, there's, a, there's a couple of questions. Stand well, up. It takes one person to go first. Stand up and go to the mic. Jerome, stand up and go to the mic because this is podcast or something, yeah. whatever that means. <laughs> <laughs> Testing. Uh, Thanks for calling me out, Professor Little. I appreciate it. Uh, <laughs> alumni, I was curious. Alumni, very, uh, very talented alum. And fan of Above the Law, as, as Ellie knows. Thank um, you. Uh, I was curious where, I mean, given Trump's seemingly inability to appoint many positions in the federal government, do you have any sense of what lawyers locally within the Ninth Circuit Bar have put themselves out there for those Ninth Circuit appointments? If you can comment, like, are they mainstream Republicans like we would expect in a normal non-Trump Republican administration, or are they more out of left field? You know, don't underestimate the, the Federalist Society. The Federalist Society is pretty active on the West Coast in various places, and that's where they're looking, is to people that are uh, David DeGroote, who runs the Federalist Society in San Francisco, who most people here probably have never heard of. Uh, Lovely guy. Watch out for him on the Ninth Circuit. He is a very lovely guy, actually. Lovely guy. Um, so I think I think that's where you're going to see it coming yeah. from. The, uh, Jer Jeremy Rosen, who ran the Federalist Society down in Los Angeles, I know is on some short list. Um, you know, Jeremy's a big First Amendment guy. I don't know if that's the president's thing, especially. But um, uh, one of the things he always, that we have a big sense of is that make no mistake, Trump does not care about courts unless they're pissing him off that day. So he has, he is kind of completely well, There's willing. one exception to that, I think. And I think that he, if he could uh, alter defamation law as it applies yes. to celebrities, <laughs> right. and, I, and I'm not kidding you, I think that this is something he probably no. cares deeply about. I, and if he could do something about it, he would love to. It I thought, is. and I said this during the campaign, that yeah. the most important legal yep. statement that Trump made during the campaign was, let's open up, we want to open up the libel laws. And I've said yep. repeatedly <laughs> that this is, and you know, my politics are kind of obvious, but that... You know, one of the things I said during the campaign that one of the things that I was worried about was that whoever won, whether it was Trump or Hillary Clinton, you've got two people who don't like the press very much at all. And both of them, I thought, would be liable to appoint kind of anti-Times v. Sullivan people um, to the court. But in general, to the question, Trump generally doesn't care about the courts, and so he has generally been willing to completely farm out the operation to the Federal Society and the Heritage Foundation, and they are ready for this. You know, they, 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 they this is their moment, and they know it. it. It'll be a test of the blue slip, blue slip system because we have two Democratic senators, and the tradition would be that a senator could block a, a choice for a court. Um, by filing a blue slip or something. And, and they've so said now- It's a little now, blue piece of paper. And they wouldn't said, block them, they would just hold them back, right? It would just slow it down. They, they've said that they won't do it. They're not gonna honor the blue slip system yeah. uh, if it comes down to it. And so it's gonna be a test of who can satisfy the two Democratic senators or whether the Senate's willing to blow up that Because tradition. we, look, we, you were saying that Sessions knows what he's doing. So does Mitch McConnell. Yeah. So does Mitch McConnell. Well, and it was like that I, during the Bush administration a little bit, wasn't it, Rory? I mean, the, the blue slips were kind of more advised. They became more, it's up to the committee chair. And when Obama was president, as I understand it, um, the Democrats were, and Democrats controlled the Senate, they were very respectful of home state senators using the blue slip process. It's not quite the case during the George W. Bush administration um, where, where the blue slips Yeah, had there less. have been deals made in the past where they say we're going to do, uh, you know, one Republican for two Democrats if a Democratic, you know, during Clinton mm -hmm. and things. So, so that's how Dick Coleman that's how they got, got on the Ninth yeah. Circuit, uh, yeah. even though he's a Republican. Um, so it'll be interesting to see. Really, it'll be a test of Feinstein. I mean, Feinstein has, 
She's a very senior member of the Senate. Um, uh, it'll be a real test to see how the system can work and how many senators on the Republican side are willing to blow up a system in the long run, mm -hmm. because they're not going to be in power forever. They're not, I don't think, they're not going to be there maybe two years, maybe four years. So oh, They're going to get their four. I mean, I keep telling liberals, like, you got to look at the map in 2018, yo. They're going to get their four, but we don't know if they're going to get eight. Right. You got to... Julie, was, were you going to say something, Julie? Yeah, I, was, I mean, I think it was is piggybacking on, on your point, which is that I think the question was, what are we seeing? Is it going to be sort of, you know, some out-of-the-box kind of crazy? Um, I don't think we're seeing that on the lists right now or sort of what who we would see from the Federalist Society or, or backed by the Heritage Foundation. I, I mean, you just don't know, I, I think. And I worry a little bit, um, and that's sort of why I, I worry about, you know, who is going to replace O'Scanlan. Is it going to be someone who is sort of a judicial conservative of, of kind of small, you know, small C, like, you know, where does the rule of law come in? Or is it going to be someone pushing more of a, of a conservative agenda? Um, I think so far the lists have been, that we've seen, have not been um, so far out of the, the mainstream. Um, but I think we'll see, and I think it depends on whether all of a sudden we start catching the attention of... I mean, I'll go so far to say, I don't think Gorsuch was such a bad choice. There were, there were people who were scarier to me than Gorsuch, and we'll see over time. Bill Pryor. Well, he wasn't a crony, right? <laughs> yeah, right, he wasn't a preacher, but he wasn't, Gorsuch wasn't a crony, right? I mean, he was an independent legal uh, thinker. He wasn't and, a Harriet Mears type. And hopefully Mears he's an environmentalist. Type. He's from Colorado. We, I became a crazy... I want to get this, this question. I became a crazy uh, Thomas Hardiman fan, like, all of a sudden, but... <laughs> Thank you for this uh, interesting and informative panel. So technology is ever more important in our society, uh, whether it's civil law with regard to social media, whether it's criminal with regard to search and seizure, whether it's patent law. A lot of these issues arise in Ninth Circuit. Has the Ninth Circuit been useful in helping to shape law regarding technology for the, uh, for the whole of the country? I'll say clearly yes, but... Yeah, I mean, the, the, the advantage of the common law system, of course, uh, is that judicial opinions of all sorts are helpful in shaping the law slowly, um, right, as, as they figure out some of these novel questions. Um, there are certainly questions that are perennial and that have not been resolved uh, and that continue to be an issue. And there was an opinion recently that dealt with this issue. But uh, w one is, you know, how do you, how do you confine the scope of a, a warrant so that it's for a specific piece of information when uh, the government or a government agent or a third party is searching a computer where to know what's in the computer you have to search every file. How do you how do you balance that? That has not been resolved. Uh, it, it's an open question. Judge Kaczynski, we were talking about earlier, wrote a, a concurrence at one point that was sort of like a Miranda-like uh, um, discussion of ways to kind of prophylactically you know, protect data that's not uh, subject to a warrant um, you know, from that kind of intrusion, but it was a mere concurrence. I just want to respond by saying Apple versus Samsung. Yeah. I mean, that's all I want to say. Um, I mean, the Ninth Circuit, because of Silicon Valley, is a center for a lot of this. And this opinion that came out of the Supreme Court a few months ago, which may um, not send everybody to the Western District of Texas anymore to do patent cases, uh, will probably increase the load in, in the Ninth Circuit because of its, a lot of those cases in Texas were actually companies coming out of California. So I think, yeah, the Ninth Circuit is moving that. You know, the other weird anomaly is that the Federal Circuit has this sort of automatic jurisdiction, even from the district courts that's funnel up to the federal, and the federal circuit has been reversed 
I think, more than the Ninth Circuit in the last <laughs> couple of years. Um, and, and so that's a weird, um, you know, the, a district judge here in San Francisco decides a patent case, and then it goes to the Federal Circuit for review. So it doesn't go to the Ninth Circuit. So I think it skews the, the way you think about it, but the, the litigation is coming out of the West. Not all of it. I would agree. Um, I do think there's a limit, though, to what the courts can do. Um, and I see this sort of, again, I am, I'm primarily an employment uh, practitioner doing a lot of class action work. Um, and I think you see sort of the gig economy cases, which are coming out of the Ninth Circuit. But I think the hard part is you're looking at how do you fit, you know, round peg into square hole, because we don't have sort of the employment laws right now to be dealing, to figure out how to deal with it. And you can't expect judges, or we should not really be expecting expecting judges um, to create new laws, but in some ways that's sort of what's what's happening um, or trying to figure out how to apply those in a way that just doesn't contemplate um, those sort of sorts of things. And, and so I do think um, absolutely, absolutely we're asking judges to do this, um, but I'm not sure that it's always a, an easy ask or a fair ask. I would also add that there's the other kind of big thing that comes out of the Ninth Circuit a lot are the privacy cases. Um, which are, I think, from my perspective, kind of the more important technology cases. I care less about <laughs> Apple, Samsung. I care more about what Facebook can know about my colon. Um, so, and that's that's happening in the Ninth Circuit um, as much as anywhere else. And again, the Second Circuit is a little bit more focused on who's going to make money off of it, right? So, like, you know, one, one of the great ways to think about it is is Amazon wants to pick up a drone and send it somewhere and drop a package on my house, right? Like, who's going to handle who? Who are who do we think about is, is going to handle that case? Most likely, it's either going to be the Ninth or the Second. The Ninth is going to, and I think by reputation, the Ninth is a little bit more. Facile with the technology in play. Well, and you have the Electronic Frontier Foundation, for example, which is based here in San Francisco, which drives a lot of these issues that, mm -hmm. frankly, most people don't even know are there. And they're on it, and they're concerned, and they're filing cases, and they're well-funded, actually. Um, and so, again, the Ninth Circuit is where they've chosen to be. Yep. And, and they're driving... Uh, there's some interesting cases pending right now in front of the Ninth Circuit that they've got a hold of, so... Yep. All right, I think we're a little bit over time and I want to get to drinking. So I want to say thank you very much for coming. Um, if you have more questions, um, we'll be around for a little bit. Um, but I also want to point out again that we have a Themis um, bar prep here. Um, and for over there is Yvette. Um, if you're kind of interested in California law issues, um, we've got somebody for you. Um, so thanks again. Thanks again to Themis. Thanks again to Logical. Um, and thanks, of course, to UC Hastings for providing us with this awesome space. Thank you all for coming. Thank you.